0: At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles, using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. Support for
1: this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N dot Atlassian. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. The greatest uh, conspiracies that was ever written
0: about me is that John Stewart was hired by the CIA in order to recruit me to teach me how to use satire to bring down the country. That was written in black and white.
1: But how cool if that were true? Yes. That's Bassam Youssef. When the revolution hit Egypt in 2011, Bassam was a heart surgeon, moonlighting as a political comedian. He went on to become the John Stewart of Egypt poking fun at the regime with an audience of 40 million people. I speak with him about his journey from doctor to comedian to exile, and now to podcast host in America. We talked live on stage at the world-famous Apollo Theater in New York City at the end of April. That's coming up, but let me address a few things right off the bat. First, I was stunned and dismayed, disgusted by the revelations this week in the New York magazine By Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer about the conduct of New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman. It details, as I'm sure you have seen or read, physical abuse and other abuse at the hands of Eric Schneiderman, who is a law enforcement official and one of the top law enforcement officials in the state. He resigned within three or four hours of the article being posted, which I think was the right thing to do. And now his fate is in the hands of law enforcement. He'll be criminally investigated and held accountable. So now that Eric Schneiderman has resigned, there's a vacancy for Attorney General of the state of New York that has to be filled. And over the last couple of days, uh, I've been hearing from a number of people, uh, both on social media and phone calls and emails. A couple of people stopped me on the street asking me the question, you know, will you throw your hat in the ring? So the first thing I'll say is I'm, I'm very flattered by that. I'm very touched by it. It means a lot to me. The second thing I'll say is, It's an important job, Attorney General, and it's never been more important. But frankly, I will tell you, I don't know that I want that job. I have said many, many times, politics is not my cup of tea. It's not. There are a lot of things you got to do in politics, given the current framework, given the current campaign finance system. And I have always tried to find ways to serve and served most of my adult life in a position where I didn't feel I had to compromise based on politics. And I feel that very strongly. But it is a really important job, and it's especially important now when the rule of law is under attack, when we still have pockets of corruption everywhere you look. So it's a tough thing to think about. But in any event, the immediate question that I've been getting repeatedly is, will I go through the process of being appointed to be the interim attorney general? Now, the law provides for the state legislature to make that pick. It's unclear what rules they'll be following, it's unclear how fair that process will be. But I will tell you based on my own observations, conversations I've had with people who are, you know, more in the know observers and my own experience dealing with the state legislature overall over the last number of years in my prior job, it does have the look and feel of a backroom deal. And that's not something I want to be a part of right now. So I haven't said this anywhere publicly before. I'm telling you folks, my podcast listeners first. I'm not going to participate in that process. My two cents, for what it's worth and probably will not be heeded, is that they should not have a dog and pony show in the state legislature, and they should do the thing that makes the most obvious sense, at least to me, and that is appoint as interim attorney general Barbara Underwood, who is the solicitor general of the state of New York, who is beyond reproach, who is eminently qualified, who has been in that office for a number of years. She would provide continuity and stability and gravitas and credibility until the democratic process unfolds through a open and clear election in the fall. And so the question about what I'll do with respect to the election in November, that's for another day. Like I said, I think politics is not really for me, but it's an important job. It's an important time. So we'll see. By the way, I'm really busy. I got this podcast and I love you guys and I would miss you. So that was the main question I got this week. Now let's get to some other ones. Hi, Preet. This is Sean calling from Natick, Massachusetts. I had a question regarding this judgment that was being decided in District Court in Virginia by T.S. Ellis this week uh, regarding Paul Manafort. And it just strikes me that there could be the possibility of some pretty partisan moves going on. I'm curious if you had any thoughts on that and any sort of course of action that could be taken in response to uh, judges that are clearly slanted. Love the show. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sean, from Natick. Uh, My college roommate, actually. Grew up in Natick. It's a great town, and I've been there. So, Sean, of course, you're referring to an exchange that took place in court some days ago between uh, Judge Ellis, who's presiding over part of the Paul Manafort case in the Eastern District of Virginia, and the special counsel's office, where he used some strong language with respect to the representations that are being made by the special counsel and how much power the special counsel has and it was sharp language, and it's been picked up by a lot of the president's supporters and the people who don't like the special counsel uh, investigation as proof that the special counsel is out of control. So I would actually caution you, you know, not to accuse the judge of partisanship here. I think part of the reason we're in the mess we're in and there's not a lot of faith in the system is that it's become very easy based on the, the precedent set by this president – Every time you don't like a ruling by a judge to attack the judge, attack the judge by name, suggest they're being partisan. I don't have evidence of that. And I think if we get into a mode where every time we we disagree with not just a ruling, but a comment made by a judge at a proceeding, I think we shouldn't be doing the same thing that Donald Trump does all the time. But I take the spirit of your question. So let me just say a couple of things about that. First of all, as I understand it, the judge didn't make a ruling. The judge was in a back and forth with the special counsel's office, lawyer, Michael Dreeben, was expressing some skepticism about the idea of unfettered power on the part of anyone, which is a statement that I don't disagree with myself. I think that should apply not only to the special counsel, but also to the president and also to the president's associates. So a rebuke, which this clearly was, a rebuke is not a ruling. And it is the case. I don't know what the ruling will ultimately be, and maybe it'll come out even before this airs. But judges often want to make sure they're giving both sides you know, a piece of their mind. It's happened to me. It's happened to people in my office. It's happened to folks personally, where there is tough talk and, you know, lines drawn. But then at the end of the day, the judge rules in favor of the government position, which I kind of expect him to do here. But I don't know. Maybe it was a signal that he's going to do something that doesn't seem to be quite the right decision in dismissing some of these counts in the indictment. Even if he does that, the prosecution, the, the special counsel team, has the ability to appeal it to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, I think most experts think if you look at the law and the broad mandate that the Mueller team has that he was blowing off steam and not likely to actually grant the motion by Paul Manafort. A couple more things that are important about that exchange between the judge and special counsel team. One, I didn't hear anywhere that the judge said that the charges were illegitimate um, and there's no basis for these charges to be brought. The question is whether they should be brought by the special counsel's office. And in one way, there's an argument that it's more fair to the president and the president's associates that these other cases that don't have to do directly with collusion are brought under one roof, the special counsel's office. So different prosecutors' offices are not getting in the way. Now, we already have a precedent with respect to Michael Cohen for a portion of an investigation begun by Bob Mueller being siphoned off and sent to another office. So at the end of the day, uh, even if there's a problem with the mandate that Mueller has with respect to the Manafort charges... I don't think Paul Manafort ever gets off the hook. And the second thing I will say without, without criticizing the judge is if you look at the transcript, this judge, Judge Ellis, didn't seem to be deeply versed in some of the facts, including whether or not Rod Rosenstein was recused from the investigation. So there's this whole back and forth about whether or not Bob Mueller and his team are operating in unfettered fashion. And Michael Dreeben had to return the judge to the proper perspective, which is that it's, it's not an independent counsel. It's a special counsel. They're subject to review and oversight by the Department of Justice. They're operating within the Department of Justice and they have someone beyond Bob Mueller overseeing them and that person is Rod Rosenstein. So the judge didn't seem to fully grasp that. I think Michael Dreben did a good job of explaining why they were coloring within the lines and we'll see what the decision is. And my other question is, if the judge then rules in favor of the special counsel, will the president and all of his supporters who have been hailing the judge's rebuke, will they then respect and except the judge's ruling that may go against Paul Manafort. That'll be the test. Hi, Preet. This is Sarah calling from Seattle. I've been a listener since day one, and I love your pod. I was just wondering if you could chat a little bit about the Rudy Giuliani interview that happened on Sean Hannity's show, specifically um, about the suggestion that Donald Trump not only repaid the Stormy Daniels $130,000, but that he did so over the course of several payments. Um, It's been suggested by several people that that could be a crime of structuring. Could you talk about that for us? That would be great. Thanks so much, love your show, bye-bye. Hi Sarah, thanks for your question. Taking the last part first, I don't think that structuring applies here. Structuring is usually something that prosecutors charge as a secondary charge, not a primary charge. When someone has tried to evade a reporting requirement, usually of $10,000, you know, $10,000 financial transaction, it triggers a financial reporting requirement. So sometimes people think if they make deposits of $9,800 repeatedly, that gets around that. And that is what people refer to as structuring. What you're describing here, and we don't have all the facts with respect to the flow of money, doesn't look like it was something like that. It looks like it was, if you believe the, the current argument, which keeps changing, and the current description of the facts, which keeps changing... It's a recurring, you know, retainer payment, which I don't think implicates structuring. Um, and certainly the dollar values don't look like they would implicate structuring, but I you know, that's speculation on my part. With respect to Rudy Giuliani's performance generally, let me say let me say a couple of things. Rudy Giuliani, I think, had a great career as the United States Attorney. He did it for six and a half years, not quite as long as I did, but he did it for a period of time. He tried cases personally. And whatever you think of him and his tactics, I think he was a, a sharp lawyer who brought a lot of important cases during his time as U.S. Attorney. He has not been the U.S. Attorney for almost three decades. And he has said a series of things, not just in the Sean Hannity interview, but in multiple interviews, where he concedes on air that he's not quite up to speed on the facts, that he's more focusing on the law, uh, doesn't seem to be able to answer basic questions like when the president knew about the payment, whether the president knew about the payment, to Stormy Daniels' lawyer, where the payment came from, and has continued in a way that is incriminating of his client which you know god bless him he's continued to draw a connection between the payment of $130,000 to Stormy Daniels lawyer on the eve of the election and he, he keeps drawing a connection to the election he in fact said on sunday morning on one of the talk shows that that payment that he's referring to he said it was done for other purposes in addition to possible campaign purposes end of case to my mind, that's not the end of the case. That's the beginning of the case. You know, the the fact that he may have had some personal reason to hide the, the incident with Stormy Daniels from his family doesn't change the fact that part of the reason looks you know, fairly clear now was to get a campaign advantage. And that implicates campaign laws, I think, quite clearly by the admission of his own lawyer. Now, a client is not always held responsible for what the lawyer says, although technically the law says that they are. But I think Rudy Giuliani notwithstanding his past career as a formidable lawyer, has done a disservice to his client. There are reports that Donald Trump has been irritated by Rudy Giuliani. That was reported in the AP this week. On this one point, I think Donald Trump has every right to be irritated with his lawyer. And it seems to me that both of them should take the advice that other lawyers are giving. They should tweet less. They should talk less. Here's the last thing I'll say about Rudy. And I don't like coming on air and saying negative things about lawyers who are doing their job and especially lawyers who are part of the alumni association of the southern district of new york and rudy has always been very nice to me he was one of the first people that i had dinner with to seek his advice on how i might run the office and i did that with virtually all of the living u.s attorneys in my district and elsewhere i sought a lot of advice from a lot of people and he had very good things to tell me but the thing that has bothered me the most is in his zeal to represent his client even though he says he doesn't know all the facts to refer to his former colleagues in the Southern District, working together with people in the FBI, as stormtroopers, I think crossed a line. And I speak for my office and lots and lots of people who over time have respected the legal work that Rudy Giuliani has done. But you don't call people like that stormtroopers, given what the connotation is and where that term comes from. That to me is unforgivable. My guest this week is comedian Bassem Youssef. We talked before a packed house at the Apollo Theater. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned with Preet is supported by ZipRecruiter. Hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter revolutionized hiring. Their technology finds great candidates for you. It learns what you're looking for, Identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Right now, my listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com/Preet. That's ZipRecruiter.com/Preet. Please welcome to the stage former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, the man
0: behind Stay Tuned with Preet, Preet Bharara.
1: So it occurs to me, as I walked out here, uh, that America is a great place. You guys are gonna be a very easy audience, I can see. In what other country can you be fired by the president of the country and still headline at the world-famous Apollo Theater? So, thanks for coming. It's been an interesting period of time. I was going to have a very special guest uh, to surprise you uh, because you deserve it. Um, but at the last minute, Michael Cohen pled the fifth. <laughs> so he won't he won't be he won't be joining us. It has been a strange twenty four hour period for me, like lots of twenty four hour periods. Since last year, and, and and perhaps really easy crowd, uh, and and perhaps indicative of what America is like these days. So, in the last twenty-four hours, the following things happened. Um, today, uh, some of you may know this. I hosted a day-long uh, summit, cafe chain summit, yeah, where we had amazing leaders, trailblazers people who are trying to improve their community, improve their country, uh, improve the world, really, whether it's respect to the climate change, or poverty, or hunger, uh, through science, through technology, through activism, through politics. It was really an uplifting event. And uh, we named 100 people, mostly young people, as cafe changemakers, trailblazers, who are figuring out ways to advance good causes throughout the country and throughout the world and it was an incredibly uplifting and inspiring event. I learned a lot from the event. But also in the last 24 hours, I appeared on uh, Full Frontal with Samantha B, <laughs> where I sat in her self-styled uh, panic fort <laughs> on pillows that she screamed into, given the state of the country and... And she asked me you know, questions that I, that I tried to answer um, that I thought were serious questions about attorney-client privilege and giggled every time I said taint team. <laughs> um, at one point, she asked me about the democracy task force that I'm co-chairing with Governor Christy Todd Whitman about trying to uphold and strengthen and sustain democratic institutions, which is a big deal. We're doing it through the Brendan Center. Some of you may have heard about that, I'm very proud of. So, I mean, this is a, you can applaud that. You can still applaud democracy in America. So, I mean, this is a sort of more serious questions. And, and she said, what, what are the initials of that thing again? And I said, it's a d- democracy task force. <laughs> and, and she said, so let me get this straight, pre- you're, you're trying to turn soft norms into hard laws through the DTF. So the point I guess I'm making is I'm, I'm trying to figure out the distinction between being you know, a good sport and totally debasing myself. And I'm not, I'm not sure I have the balance right. And that's maybe sort of you know, a, a metaphor for what America is going through. In any 24-hour period, you could have sort of uplifting great things happening and completely crazy stuff At the same time, I want to acknowledge some people in the audience. I teach a class, among other things that I do, a weekly seminar at NYU Law School. And so last week, I told uh, my students, I have 24 students, and I said, you know, I'm doing this show at the world-famous Apollo Theater. Ticket's on me. You can come to the show, and it should be great, but no, no pressure to come to the show. You can come. Don't come. It doesn't matter. But, you know, the offer is there. Of course, I was lying. I expected everyone to come. Only 12 of the 24 students decided to avail themselves of the opportunity of coming to the show. So just I just want to say this to those 12 students. You're getting A's. <laughs> Let's get to your questions. So you all filled out, or many of you filled out these great cards. So these are actual questions asked by folks Who were clearly drinking heavily before the show. Um, So let's go. So this is from Margarita. Uh, (laughs) I didn't even intend that joke. Who is from Astoria, who asks This is a good, a nice softball. Today is uh, Bring Your Child to Work Day. Are your kids here? So one third of my children are here, along with my wife. My youngest is here. If you listen to the podcast, you'll know that he's somewhere in the orchestra trying to solve a Rubik's Cube and also wondering what various initials his fathers are talking about mean. Uh, so not everyone could come. It's a school night, but thanks for the little guy for being here. Next question comes from Matthew from Nutley, New Jersey. What was your favorite moment working with President Obama? I would say my favorite moment of working with President Obama was that time he didn't call me. Oh, that would be all the moments. (laughs) The next question comes from Jenna from Brooklyn. (laughs) Should I love Jim Comey or hate Jim Comey? (laughs) So, So believe it or not, this is the second time today I've gotten that question. And I've had time to ruminate on my answer while I was uh, backstage in my very luxurious green room. I was uh, sipping red wine out of a paper cup. (laughs) And not all of you have read the book. So look, Jim Comey was my boss for a period of time. Jim Comey was my colleague. Jim Comey is someone, when I worked in the Senate, I arranged and set up the hearing where he testified about the hospital incident back in 2007. The incident happened in 2004. And so I had great respect for him and I have a relationship with him that you know, should be disclosed unlike Sean Hannity doesn't disclose his relationships. <laughs> so, so take what I say with, you know, for what, what it's worth. I appreciate that there are people who think Jim Comey made a mistake and I appreciate there are people who think that he may not have but the thing that I think is true is that a lot of people decide to like or hate someone in this country based on whether or not their actions cause some political consequence that they want or that they agree with. I don't know that you need to like a guy or not like a guy, but sort of understand what went on. You can put forward your criticisms of the letter that was sent right before the election, on the eve of the election, that maybe had some impact on the election, probably did have some impact on the election. My only dispute with people who criticize Jim, and there's, there's, a, there's a lot of you know, legitimate basis to criticize what he did, and I, I respect that, and I share some of those views, but I don't think that he's a liar, and I don't think that he did the things he did because he wanted some particular political outcome to happen. There has been some discussion about one of the things he said, maybe inartfully or maybe wrongly, about how he was thinking in the back of his mind, well, Hillary's going to win, and maybe that affected my judgment about something. That was a you know, not a great way to put how he decides to take the action, because it looks like he's taking into account a political result. But I don't know that it helps anybody to think about liking someone or disliking someone. I think what you want to get... Around, your head's around is whether or not what he's saying about the president now is true or not and when he says that he was told to lay off of Michael Flynn is that true or not and when he was asked for personal loyalty from the president was that true or not and you know we say all the time in criminal cases that we brought in the southern district and I brought personally about people who didn't you know others didn't like cooperating witnesses <clears throat> and we would say it doesn't matter If you like the witness or don't like the witness for these purposes, the question is whether or not you believe the witness. And if the witness has credibility and the witness is corroborated, then that's the only thing you need to decide in connection with this criminal case. Now obviously we're talking about something broader about what has happened to democracy in the country, but the relevance of what Jim Comey may have to say in connection with the Mueller investigation is, is he believable or not? And whatever you think about him, hate him, love him, neutral, although I don't think there's anyone neutral these days, I think he's telling the truth when he says those things about Donald Trump. Uh, Last question. Marcy from Brooklyn. (laughs) Question for Preet. How do you support your family on a weekly podcast? (laughs) Marcy, where where are you? So it's a great question. What you do is... From time to time, you have a live podcast in a huge theater and you charge people money. And that helps. But I appreciate your concern. Thanks for your questions, folks. Now let me introduce a guest that I am, I'm so pleased and excited to bring out Bassam Youssef. I've been tweeting about him for a while, yeah. <clears throat> uh, I don't know anyone who has more courage and more fortitude combined with humor and grace and intelligence than Bassam Youssef. He began as a cardiothoracic surgeon, not began, I guess at birth he didn't have his <laughs> med- medical degree, although I don't know, this guy might have, and, and quickly became almost overnight a sensation when he decided to mock and satirize the Egyptian leadership, which landed him in a lot of trouble. And ultimately, what's good for us is it landed him in America, and we have the benefit of his wisdom and his performances. Ladies and gentlemen, Basim Yusuf. It's That's the, quite an entrance. I, it's the Apollo. I mean, I'm
0: sorry, your mom is the listening. World can, the world famous. Your mom is listening and I don't want to swear. You but can. It's, it's, the it's not Egypt, Apollo. buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, you can swear in Egypt, but not...
1: But not you at certain people. You can swear down. <laughs> yes. Not up. So thank you so much for coming.
0: Oh, my God. I mean, it's amazing. You, you filled it up. It's amazing. I mean, you know how amazing it is? These people are paying tickets for a podcast they can listen to for free. I'm Thank you so much, guys. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: All right. I didn't, I didn't invite those people. Th- that,
0: that's cool. They're just just people shouting Arabic things, scaring the shit out of white people. That's fine. <laughs> just, it's
1: fine. It's just like... This, 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 this Story is, this of your is, life. Yes. Right?
0: That's why, you know, Arab people, they avoid first class because they want to be as far as possible from the cockpit. <laughs> they want to be like back there.
1: So they're the anti-Scott Pruitt. Cool. Can we start at the beginning? Yes. Not birth. Mm-hmm. So you, you became a surgeon, a heart surgeon. Is that the hardest kind of doctor to become?
0: Uh, that and brain surgery, yes.
1: Yeah. Why'd you do that?
0: Uh, to please my parents
1: yes you're a better you're a better son than although then I never became a comedian
0: well well, the thing is like if if you're in egypt you're you're allowed only uh, three choices to be a doctor, an engineer, or a disappointment and uh, <laughs>
1: that's very similar to india yeah actually. exactly
0: and uh this is kind of like the status of middle class families in egypt my son the doctor, my son the engineer that's it, and all is left now is to get them married <laughs> right so what was
1: it like growing up in Cairo, back when you grew up in Cairo?
0: It, we were middle class, as I said, and, and we feel privileged according like, to a country like Egypt, a developing country like Egypt. Uh, we went to good schools. I was a nerd. I went to the school, got high grades, went to do medicine. But even when I was doing medicine, I felt that there was something missi- missing because I didn't really like to be a doctor because all doctors have a gut, gut complex, they're assholes, and I didn't want to be associated with them. <laughs> And, uh, and, and then I always wanted to have my own social life outside of medicine. So I always played sports and had hobbies, hobbies that don't really go with being a doctor.
1: What kind of hobby does not go with being a doctor? Dancing. Dancing.
0: Yeah, I did salsa for uh, t- 10 years, and then I did tango for another like a considerable amount of my time. I did salsa and tango, yes.
1: OK. I mean, that's great. <laughs> yes. Was, I actually, was, there, was there a lot of a opportunity? Fact, as
0: I was a resident in heart surgery, I had the biggest salsa class in Egypt. I had like 50 people coming to my classes, each class. You were teaching salsa? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I was a badass. <laughs> I wouldn't
1: use the past tense, Basim.
0: Well, but here's the thing. This was frowned upon. This was criticized by people in my circle as doctors. They would say that this is not... It's not something a doctor would do. And they, I was judged not because of my work or my level of expertise as a doctor, but because I went out there and danced. The reason why I mentioned that is people take salsa and tango and dancing lightly, but the thing about judgment, in certain places in the world, dictatorship doesn't start from tyranny. It starts from judgment and infringing on your personal life and telling you what you can and cannot do and what is appropriate and what's accepted by society or not. So this even before the revolution even oh thank you thank you thank you I'm going to start my classes 52nd street very soon and
1: <laughs> did you ever see the movie footloose
0: yes okay I was- but 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 the thing is this is like a way that like when the revolution happened and those young people took to the street most of the discussion for the older generation was they were disturbed because they didn't like this kind of disruption of the status quo Anything that disrupts the status quo is frowned upon. Whether this was calling for the fall of a dictator or going out and dancing and doing, you know, your own thing. And um, even after the revolution, when I had my show, I didn't think too much about it at the time. But uh, my Facebook profile was public. You know, I'm a regular guy, I did, and and my pictures were there. And I, the Islamists and later on the pro-military TV stations started to go in and pick up private f- photos of me during dancing
1: in compromising tango positions
0: oh yes in compromising the, i mean hey it's like <laughs> before horizontal tango there is vertical tango and it starts from there i'm
1: just going to tell my son just keep keep doing the rubik's cube buddy <laughs>
0: <laughs> and 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 the thing is this this was actually like a big issue used by propaganda against me as he is not good enough to speak about democracy because the democracy that he wants is about sexual freedom and douchebaggery. That's that's that that's. That, <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. What? That means like being, like you know, being okay. a, a deviant, uh, sex hungry, whatever. Anyway, okay. so that was used, which you were, absolutely. But okay. this is, but this is the way they attack. <laughs> they they don't attack your uh, your ideas. You don't, they don't attack what you propose concerning democracy or freedom of expression they will go to the private life and they will try to compromise you even if that is just like you know, they, we're, we're dancing we're not doing anything but that was enough for people to use that against me and other people to tell them this is the kind of freedom that they want to bring to the country right.
1: B- before we get to the moment where you decided to start doing satire and comedy especially with respect to the leadership of Egypt before you did any of that were you a funny person? Like, did you make jokes in the operating room over the beating heart, I mean. No, 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 there, there's what one, you doing?
0: there's one rule in the operating room, yeah. uh, which is the senior surgeon makes the jokes and everybody laughs. <laughs> you cannot not laugh. And that was. And you were thing. the senior surgeon. Oh, no, 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 I was, oh. I was, okay. uh, I, I'm the one who's doing the laughing. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, but like, you have to imagine, this, these these are like operations that go to five and six hours people are not, like, there uh, discussing Kafka. They are actually, you know, cracking jokes and, like, you know, talking about stuff. So, actually, some of the best jokes are, are cracked into the operation room. But I was not exceptionally funny. I was not the guy who goes in. And, and I was a nerd. I went to medical right. school. So,
1: so there is... So, so, over countless operations, you learned at the feet of the head surgeons? Yes. Who, who, who you had to laugh at? Oh yeah. Okay. That's All my right. experience in comedy. That's good training. Yes. <laughs> so then you get to this point where you decide to make YouTube videos. Yes. On a lark. hmm What happened?
0: Well, I'm gonna go back a little bit. Of like, why did I decide to do the YouTube videos? Because when when the revolution happened. I mean, I, I was I'm not like I was not as um, a political actor. Right.
1: Remind people what year the revolution was. When
0: the revolution was the 2011, uh, 25th of January 2011. And like many people, I was, you know, surprised by the fact that there are people in the streets calling for the fall of the regime. That was something that I've, nev- I've never seen in my life. I mean, 30 years of my life, I'm under the same president, which, you know, gets a little bit comfortable, repetitive. And, um, and I always say, like, in the Middle East, we have a long-term relationships with our dictatorship. And it's family thing. And, um... <laughs> It's kind of like I always like, this is the problem this is the difference between you and us. You kind of every four years you 're kind of changing your present like a tender date you're swiping at Alex. <laughs> so we have stability more and uh, uh, and what happened was that I, I, I was not uh, an activist, but I, I, I was like many people like fed up with the same president and, and there was like news about him giving the president to his son and so I went there i didn 't try to uh, protest or uh, throw rocks. I just went there as a doctor trying to treat people in the square. And there's one night where I kind of like I wanted to do a more active role. So there was like a kind of like a line of, um, uh, of a confrontation between the people in the square and the thugs that were uh, pushed by the government in order to get them out of the square. And they were like throwing rocks at each other. And I wanted to be active. And I, I said like, you know I, I'm I'm, going to just collect my courage and I'm going to get a rock and I'm going to throw it to the other side and then I got it and then I threw it and it slipped and it hit one on the back of our side and (laughs) and thank God I was wearing a white coat so that gave me protection so I just turned around and just like went back to fixing wounds instead of causing them (laughs) and that was the 18 days I mean the 18 days I mean we were happy we celebrated the removal of the dictator Hosni Mubarak at that time and d- during the six weeks after the revolution, I was, uh, people started to collect the videos of the Egyptian media. And I remember, like, I was in the streets, in the square, seeing a certain reality going back, faced by a different reality on television. That was a reality that was totally made up. I mean, if you talk about fake news, I mean, we've got it. And um, I said, like, this is... Th- this somebody needs to remind people of what was the media doing while they were in the streets. So I started to collect and edit the videos and did these... Uh, videos in my laundry room. And I just released them. I said, like, yeah, maybe 10,000 people will watch movies. Right. And how many people watched? Like in five weeks, actually six, seven weeks, there were like 5 million people watching. 5 million is like how much your cat gets. But at that time, <laughs> 5 million was a big, big number back in Egypt. And suddenly every single TV network started to contact me to start a show on, the, uh, on a TV. And, and at that time, I was already accepted in a pediatric heart surgery fellowship in Cleveland. And I was waiting for, for my H-1 visa. And I know under Trump that would be a distant memory, the H-1 visa. <laughs> but uh, I was waiting for the H-1 visa to come. And, then, and when it arrived, it arrived the same day where I was having the contract that will give me a one-year contract to do a TV show. They came on the same day. And I had to make a choice. Should I continue like, healing people's hearts, or should I choose money? And I chose money. And, <laughs> yes. and uh, I did. You were destined for America. Yes. And, <laughs> and then there's the issue of my mom. She, she's going gonna to be deprived of saying, like, my son the doctor. So we made a deal. She, she was happy that I would stay. And she said, but like, if you're going to stay, you have to continue doing a do- being a doctor. So I continued doing my shifts. And uh, so you were,
1: mo- you were moonlighting, I, I was moonlighting doing another show?
0: Yes, right. or moonlighting being a doctor. So yeah. but like, I, I would attend the operations and I would give the lectures because at that time I was an attendant surgeon. And it was difficult actually to try to explain thoracic injuries in the ER where people are laughing from last night's show. And uh, it was difficult, but I continued doing that for a year and a half and then I chose to continue with entertainment. So that show became a runaway success?
1: Yes. Ultimately... Your viewership per episode was what? Uh,
0: In the second season, 30 million. In the last final season, it was 40 million. 40 million? Yeah, 40 million.
1: What does that tell you about what people in Egypt and other Arab countries were hungering for, that 40 million people were tuning in to watch this former doctor make fun of the regime?
0: Well, in Egypt, we have a very long tradition of comedy, but most of the comedy was either social comedy, and if it would talk about authority to talk about it in an indirect way. And this was the first time that would we go and actually make fun straight ahead, like in your face, speaking about whether religious authority or military authority. And for them, this was even people who didn't agree with you would still watch because that was interesting. So under the um, uh, Muslim Brotherhood, I would make fun of the Muslim Brotherhood and the presidency and my show would show on Friday. And the next day, on Saturday, there were like four or five religious channels. They are replaying bits of my show. And then they come back. It's like, this is not acceptable. But one time as they came back, actually, they caught one of the guests laughing. And uh, <laughs> so I had kind of like a free rerun on, on the opposition uh, channels. I, I think the 30 or the 40 million people, I think half of them were hate-watching the show. <laughs> I, and, I, and I really have to thank them for the rating.
1: So when did the death threat start?
0: It happened under the Islamist when a group that were a fan- um, fanatic supporters of a certain Islamic leader started to threaten, they're going to come and burn the theater. And then there were phone calls getting to me from you know people warning me that they're in the, they heard this and that. And you don't know which one is really, which one is not. And then it became even worse under the military when there were people coming and, and putting the the theater under siege and you don't know if these people are paid or they're real people but you don't know in, in a moment of anger what could happen and, and I took a decision when I was doing the show that I should not worry about this because at the end of the day you have a show to, to do you cannot, you cannot be affected by that
1: so you didn't cut back on your comedy or on your criticism mm. in the face of threats
0: yes because if you do the people watching the show will feel it and they don't Give a rat ass what is happening to you. They want a good show. So at the end of the day, the people watching, they need to have the same exact quality every time. At one point when, when I was arrested for the general yeah. prosecutor and I was going to be interrogated and everybody in my show said, we're going to come to you. We're going to stand in. Slurs. It's like, no, 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 guys, guys, we have a show after tomorrow. If you come with me and, and I'm back with you here, there will be a very bad show. If I go there and get arrested, we have no show. Right. So you have, to, cu- you have to, to focus on your work. Nobody, nobody will, will say, oh, my God, he was, he was threatened. He was under pressure. The jokes were not nice because he was stressed. Nobody cares. Right.
1: So, so you either do it fully I know, or, or like you don't I, do I, it at I know all. like I'm painting you
0: guys like a, kind of a bunch of zombies who don't care. But like, I'm talking about like the general uh, view,
1: like you know people who watch television. They don't care. So which is not you. Well, ultimately, <laughs> there was there was a campaign against you by the regime. You were threatened. You were fined. You were interrogated. Tell us about the interrogation. Oh, so what, what, <laughs> how do you interrogate a comedian? I have some familiarity with interrogations, and I'm curious. So I woke up one
0: day and I found, and i actually I found that from television. I somebody's calling this like, and we have to turn on the television right now. And I watched and said, like the uh, the general attorney, which is I, I think the district attorney here or something, they have issued a warrant of arrest against me. Not a subpoena, but an arrest. And I was in the theater with the rest of my team. And I called the lawyers, like, what does that mean? It's like, I don't know, but it seems that you have a warrant for your arrest. <laughs> it
1: seems bad.
0: Yeah. Right. And, and there were like four accusations: insulting the president. That was under Morsi, insulting the president, insulting Islam, uh, spreading false rumors, and, um, a- a- and disrupting the fabric of society.
1: It's a, little over, it's a little broad. Uh,
0: yes. <laughs> How can you disrupt the fabric of society? And that was right after an episode where President Morsi at the time wore kind of a funny hat when he was receiving an award. And I wore like a much bigger hat. Like, <laughs> and that was it. I mean, I didn't do anything. I just went in and then they removed it and that was it. So that was kind of like at night. So I called my wife and I said, like, get Nadia. That was my daughter that, uh, like, uh, she was two. And it's like, go to your parents' house. And the lawyer said, like, don't go back to your house because you don't know if, if the, the police are going to come show up. And tomorrow, just, like, stay in the theater, s- stay over, and, and voluntarily, you know, turn yourself in, which I did. But as I go, I, I talked to the uh, prop master. I said, like, get me the hat. <laughs> so we, we, went with, we went with three different cars and a pickup trunk, especially for the hat. We, we rented a pickup truck. And, and the hat was there, and I went there, and I went into the persecutor office with the big hat. And, uh, <laughs> and, and then you, you go, and, and then the funny thing is, as I go into the, the office, the police officers who were there started to take selfies with me. <laughs> and then the people who were working with this p- persecutor started taking selfies with me. <laughs> And he said, all right, come on, we, have, we need to start the interrogations. Like everybody with, left, the ha- like, with the hat? No, so no, no, the is hat okay. is outside because it couldn't right. fit into the door. And, okay. uh, <laughs> and, and then the, the uh, so uh, I say this, I tell this, uh, this story a lot. I, uh, the guy said, like, all right, so we're having four accusations. With these acu- accusations, there is a certain episode that is involved. And we have the episodes on, on DVDs. And we're going to play these on this computer over there and we're going to walk you through it, and you get, you're going to comment on the accusations. Right. And then they were playing this, trying to play these CDs on an, an outdated 1995 desktop, <laughs> and they cannot for 15, 20 minutes, and I, I'm, I was getting bored. So <laughs> I stood up trying to help them playing the evidence against me. <laughs> <laughs> <And> <laughs> you're
1: good at computers,
0: too? No, but like, I was, I was starting to ask them, do you have media player? Do you have like, <laughs> do you have VLC? Usually VLC plays this stuff. And I kind of made a joke. was like, ah, why is the keyboard so sticky? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Prosecutor, what do you do here at night? And um, so, so he said, okay, it is not working so we're just going to pretend that it worked and we're going to ask you from the script. <laughs> but you you have to pretend that it's working. Is that okay? And I told him, do I have a choice? He said, no. So said, all right, let's go. And he started to ask me, like... He would ask me about the certain joke. What did you mean when you said this and this about the president? So, of course, I'm playing stupid. I didn't mean anything. So he started to uh, tell me, and why is this funny? It's like, I don't know. You have to ask the people. But people are laughing in the theaters. Like, well, you need to ask them why they're laughing. And the thing is, to be questioned about your jokes is the most demoralizing thing can ever happen to you. (laughs) And then after six hours, I was, like, let on bail 15,000 pounds at that time. And I went home, and actually I went to the theater, and and we the, the whole thing about me going to that. I started my episode recreating that image going in to the stage, and that was a big moment because it just like it was obvious that the regime at that time embarrassed itself trying to go after a joker.
1: So, so you had to deal with propaganda against you. Yes, because they were trying to discredit you. Yes, what was what was one of the craziest? propaganda theories against you.
0: So when I, when I brought Jon Stewart on the show, of course, <laughs> he's bringing this Jew, you know, <laughs> on the show, which is like a hidden message. Uh, you know, is like, and, and But the, the greatest uh, conspiracies that was ever written about me is that John Stewart was hired by the CIA in order to recruit me, to teach me how to use satire to bring down the country. That was written in black and white. <laughs> Um, This was written in black and white in one of uh, uh, a big newspaper and that was under the Muslim Brotherhood But it was written by a pro-military author who repeated the same conspiracy under the military But how cool if that were true
1: Yes Maybe this is why we don't see John Stewart right now (laughs) He grew that beard as a whole (laughs) thing So then ultimately it came to an end
0: It kind of ended a few times Well,
1: The ultimate end when you left Yes they fined you. Yes. How much was the fine?
0: A hundred million pounds. And that, that was an arbitration case between me and the channel that actually cancelled the show.
1: Who was your lawyer? Michael Cohen? Uh,
0: <laughs> I mean, I wish that he would give me the same services that, uh, <laughs> that Trump had with him. But that was a totally political decision. Because you see, the new regime uh, kind of learned from their pre- predecessor. They're not going to go and interrogate me for the jokes. They have to have find a proxy, right. someone else to go in. It's like, oh, it's, it's a financial dispute. The regime have no problem with Bassin, but it's a financial dispute. And, but that can use that in order to even put me on a no-flight list or put me in jail. So the, uh, the verdict came out 11th of November, 12 noon, and the lawyer called me and said, like, I have already booked a, a plane for you. You're leaving the country in, in four hours. And I jumped on a plane and I left, and uh, that was... 11 November 2014, and I never came back.
1: The interesting thing about that is that the regime could have, at any point, arrested you, not just interrogated you, shut down the show, ordered the show shut down. There's all sorts of things they could have done in that authoritarian environment, but they didn't. As you say, they had to choose a proxy. So on the one hand, they didn't want to take the strong step against you but they wanted still you to go away. Mm-hmm. What were they afraid of?
0: It's appearances. They need to maintain their appearances in front of the Western world. So we have a parliament. Everybody knows that this parliament doesn't do anything, but it's the appearance of the parliament. So they're not coming after me, like, heads on because of appearances. So when they ask uh, Sisi, uh did you stop him? It? No, it's, we didn't have any. They anything still to want to deny
1: it. it, right? But I think that comes as a surprise to a lot of people who think, well, if it's an authoritarian regime, They do what they want, they like to exert power, they like to flex their muscles, but there is still a part of them, and maybe this is true a little bit in Russia and other places as well, that do all these underhanded things and these anti-democratic things and these anti-individual liberty things, but they still want the West to think there is some semblance of democracy and freedom. Is there some strength or some approach that the West can take knowing that that is true, that we're not taking?
0: Well, here's the question. Don't you think that the West already knows? I mean, the West knows. I mean, this is, I mean they're not fooling anybody. Now you have to forgive me for the seriousness of this, but I, when I talk about like how horrible it is, the dictatorship back in Egypt and how this is beautiful and we wish we have your democracy, guys. Let's not forget that like all of these dictators, they buy their weapons from the West and they get the military aid from the West. And the congressmen and the senators who sign these deals, they know exactly what is happening there, there. And they're doing this just to boost their arms sales. So they know it's just like, it's a dance. If you want to oppress your people, just do it in, in an elegant way. Don't do it North Korea style. <laughs> do it our style, you know. But I mean, what is the difference between some of the oppressive regimes in the Gulf and Iran and North Korea? Or Egypt? It's just like, is a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. It's the same thing. France, for example. France is a a, a huge country that's vocal for human rights, but once you pay the money and you get their jet fighters, they're silent, you know? Same thing with Britain, same thing with Germany, same thing with the United States. They just don't want it to be too much on the surface, too much apparent. We're gonna give you the aid, we're gonna give you the weapons, but just don't make us look bad in front of our constituents. Who don't really care? The constituents care more about like the care and tax cuts and other things. They don't. They don't care about. It. They just like, don't make too much noise, as you are stifling people's voices. So it's a dance at the end of the day, and everybody's in it.
1: Let me ask you a question about the state of democracy in America. So a lot of people criticize the president. Is their right to do it? and they say he sounds like an autocrat and he sounds like someone who likes despots. How do you rank Donald Trump, given his rhetoric and actions, against the people that you know are actual autocrats in the world, including Egypt?
0: Well, I think Trump is trying hard. I think uh, <laughs> I, I think in the airport he will be more of a kind of a tree-hugging liberal. Uh, <laughs> But again, it's not about Donald Trump. It's about the system doesn't allow him to go further. I mean, I think right. if Donald Trump didn't have the system to stop him, I mean, I think if it was up to Donald Trump, he would, he would fire you and put you in jail next to Hillary Clinton. But, but the system doesn't allow him to do that. Right. So and the, the, system, the system matters. It's the system, not the person. Yeah. And this is the, this, is, this is the thing. In other parts of the world, the system is an accomplice. But here, it's supposed to work as a safeguard. So, and this is why when, when you see uh, Sisi visiting the White House, uh, you see that like this look of adoration of Trump. <laughs> it's like, how, uh, how do you do it? You know, <laughs> how can I put all of these people in jail? Yeah. Or, when,
1: or when Erdogan visits. Yeah. Or, yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. But like, we keep speaking about individuals, and, and it's, it's the system that makes a difference.
1: But so, do you think then that Americans should relax? No. And not get so carried away because no, the no. system stops him. No, no.
0: no. It's like there, there's two ways to do it. There's the, the humorous way. It's like, <laughs> come on, don't bitch and whine. You don't know what's happening. The rest of the world, you can do that. But it, it really comes down to you earn this kind of level of democracy that you should always fight for. Yeah. That's a big difference. You can't say just like just because of the rest of the world is like falling apart, it's like, thank God we can still vote in the midterms. The, 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 you ha- you're fighting for a, a level of excellence and a level of democracy that should always be there and if, if somebody is violating this kind of of, of, of system you should fight for, to, to restore it and, and that's the difference <clears throat> having said that <laughs> I still can't believe that the democrats I mean, we we talk about the Republicans and and Trump, and we talk about democracy and everything, but there are stuff that's happening in this system that boggles me. How come it's so apparent that there are people in your Congress and your Senate that voting for stuff that is absolutely against the welfare and the the interests of the American people because they were paid by lobbies? Great question. This boggles me. This boggles me because, yes, you have democracy. But at the end of the day, you have people who... I mean, I'm sure that there's not a single person in this country would ever vote to kill net neutrality. And yet, there were people who were unelected, who who, who gathered in a room who killed net neutrality because they were paid by big players in the ITEC. There's absolutely, I'm sure that no one in this country would vote for increasing the military budget for another $60 billion, who, by the way, the Democrats voted for it with the Republicans. I'm sure that they would put this $60 billion in in, health care and in education, and yet you find that. So this is the part of... It's even worse.
1: You even have a member of the cabinet who says forthrightly, in front of hundreds and hundreds of people this week, openly... If a lobbyist was going to pay me, I might meet with them. Yes, right you know it's interesting. Another thing you've said about the commonality among people who are dictators is that they don't have a sense of humor
0: yes they are they are very thin-skinned and in your case, orange skinned. I say this <laughs> again. i I say this
1: so So how can people use comedy and humor here for political good and satire and, and what's your advice? to people who are doing satire advice? in this country. you want me to give yeah, advice? Yeah, of
0: course. Me, out of all people, I would have benefited from my We're advice. We're in the Apollo, but... <laughs> man. You, you've, you've... Well, here's the thing. I mean, there's no advice needed because we've seen that under Bush. The, the, the people who did comedy and satire did the same with Bush. They're doing the same with Trump. I don't really think that satire changes the political scene. It is people who change the political scene. As a matter of fact, some people who would watch the late-night comedy shows might think that they have done their job and when it comes to midterm, they don't go vote and we're all screwed and then the ones who are laughing at the end are the other side. It, I think the biggest value for comedy is to bring more people to the table to discuss otherwise very dull topics like healthcare education, or education or, 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 or written affairs so people will be more aware about these issues comedy in itself doesn't change the world. It is really up to the people to stand up. So last year, when we have like the big women's march, 750,000 people took the streets in LA. And then two weeks later, there were like regional uh, elections. Only 12% showed up. It's
1: like, yeah.
0: you know, and, and that's why I was like, oh, come back and do the shows. Like, it doesn't help if you do not have the will to change things yourself. Someone said like, you know, prayer don't change things Prayer change people, and people change things. Same with comedy. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's the people who's going to do it, not you laughing and falling off of your couch, watching uh, Trevor Noah or, or Sam B or, or, or John Oliver. It makes you more aware of what's happening, but it's really up to you to make the change.
1: So why America? Why did you come to America? Because I know the language. And it's
0: easier to get a green card here was it at at my time but now i have like a a nine month old son so he's my anchor baby so i'm not going anywhere bitches um
1: you care about the issue of immigration and one one thing that i'm very excited about and i want to tell folks about is that you're launching our second podcast under cafe
0: i'm gonna have my own podcast people that's
1: right (laughs) And it, it, leads, it leads me to an observation. You tell me if it's true. So, you know, I used to have a lot of authority. I had subpoena power. And I had to leave that job, not of my own choice. And then I, I launched a podcast. You had 40 million viewers, very powerful voice. You were basically run out of Egypt. And you launched a podcast. And so, is it true then that the arc of the moral universe is long... But that it it bends towards podcasts. Yes.
0: Yes. And and uh, the the that's what I thought. Yes, and the name of the podcast is Remade in America. I love it.
1: What do What do you think of the state of immigration? Immigrants. By the way, by some noise, who here is an immigrant or the child of an immigrant?
0: I always say, you know, like, I, I, can I say, how many Arabs are here? <laughs> the FBI
1: is coming. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not. This is the Apollo.
0: <laughs>
1: Final question. What, are you optimistic about the future of America and the world?
0: I mean, here, here's what gives me uh, hope sometimes in, in the city that I live in now, in Los Angeles. And I think this is what would make the change. Uh, when people tell me, what do you like more about Los Angeles? First of all, it's like, oh my God, you're in Los Angeles. How about the traffic? It's like, I come from Cairo. What traffic? So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but here's, what I, here's what maybe gives me hope in, in Los Angeles. My daughter goes to kindergarten in a public school next to us. And she's in a 2025 20, uh, student class. And in that class, there are... Koreans, Chinese, white people, Jewish people, black people, Indian people, all kind of spectrum, the human spectrum is there, like in a mix. Her her best friend, her name is Chloe. Her mom is uh, a Jewish woman from Chicago, and her dad is a Catholic from Cote d'Ivoire. And you have her other best friend is Korean. And when you ask my daughter, Nadia... Uh, what does Chloe look like? What does she look like she doesn 't tell her that like, she 's dark or she's brown. she 's brown. she has like two little things on her hair. Yeah. What does Sarah look like, which is the koreans like she wears glasses she, They do not see that differences and and, and this this is one of the, one of those moments where, like I made the right decision to come here and maybe <laughs> and I, you know, we know when, when, you, when people say, I know it sounds very corny, people say like children are the future, but maybe it is. When you see it in those classrooms, you see it in the wonderful uh, students of Parkland who are yes. kind of like making <laughs> veteran congresspeople shitting their pants.
1: Yeah.
0: And, and maybe this is where like, there is hope for this. And, and we criticize democracy and the system in America, but what is good about the, of this, this country, it's dynamic. And there's always a chance to change, and I, and I hope it will change for the better. But I think it really comes down to the younger generation. Maybe this, this is the, the, the future. And maybe saying this, back in the Middle East, it sounds and it looks horrible and it looks disappointing, but there, the young people there, they are questioning everything. And this is the one thing that has changed after all of these years of destruction. They're questioning everything. They are rethinking everything that they've been told about the military, about the religious authority. So maybe it is, at the end of the day, as corny as it sounds, maybe children are
1: the future. I don't think it's corny. I think it's yeah. true. Yeah. So that's it's actually a great segue into my close of the show, where I always end by talking about something that struck me this week. And... There has been a lot of sort of public policy discussion about how to treat teachers in this country, and there have been places where teachers have walked out because they're not getting paid enough money. They're not being given enough respect. They're not being treated in the way you would want to treat people who are going to lead and teach and uh, mentor the next generation that's going to do all these great things that we want for our country and for the world. And those are discussions that happen in the newspapers, but often these things are very personal. And I I was at a dinner a big fancy dinner on Tuesday night and someone got up and an honoree got up and usually people get up and they say nice things about their family or about some professional mentor. And this person got up and he spent his entire time talking about a teacher he had in high school who encouraged him to be everything that he could be and without whom he wouldn't have gotten as far as he got to get this honor at this big dinner where lots of people were looking on. And it occurred to me that I had, you know, sometimes forget to honor and remember and appreciate the teachers that I've had. And literally in the middle of the dinner, I emailed the best teacher that I ever had in high school, Mrs. Tomlinson, who was my literature teacher, my history teacher, and she was also the advisor to the school newspaper, of which I was, I was the editor-in-chief. And, and I, hadn't, I hadn't spoken. Okay, Mr. Cardiothoracic Surgeon. <laughs> Also does salsa. <laughs> and I'm a stand-up comic and had 40 million. Okay, you just settle down over there. <laughs> Let me finish my nice little thing. <laughs> and I just sent her an email, which I should do much more often, telling her that I appreciated her and inviting her to the summit we had today and inviting her to the Apollo tonight. She wasn't able to come. And you know she was also the reason... Uh, you know, the, the first cause for me to do anything that in, in any way could be considered brave outside my family. She had, she was the best teacher in the school, and she'd been fired for reasons that didn't seem right to me. And I was, a, you know, a skinny, pimply-faced, 17-year-old high school senior, and I marched into the, marched. I waited outside, sort of trembling. <laughs> There's no marching. And I, you know, I knocked, him, and I got admitted to the headmaster. It was a private school. We had a headmaster into his office, and I basically told him off and was summarily kicked kicked out of his office. She was the first person who got me to think about a certain kind of courage that you can have, not just someone who taught me how to write a paragraph or how to report a story or how to think about history or how to read a great book of literature. And the best teachers are the ones who do that. And I don't think we honor them enough. I don't think we think about them enough. I don't think we pay them enough. And we should have more of that. So to close out, my final thought is, I don't think you would be where you are, notwithstanding the loving family that you had and that I had, we wouldn't be where we are either without the teachers we had. So let's honor them and God bless the teachers. Thanks everybody. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Bassem Youssef. You can find his podcast at applepodcast.com slash Bassem, B-A-S-S-E-M. The show launches on May 29th, so subscribe now. If you like this show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send me an email to stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.